Hello. Welcome to this episode of Great Conversations. We're glad you're here and we're glad you've joined us in the Great Conversation studios. My name is Angie Cooksey. I'm your hostess for this conversation and I'm privileged to invite to this conversation today Dr. George Koo. Dr. Koo, welcome to Great Conversations. We're glad you're here. Dr. Koo is a Chancellor's Professor Emeritus of Education from Indiana University and currently Senior Scholar at the National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment or fondly referred to as NILOA. Welcome Dr. Koo, we are so glad to have you here. Thank you, thank you Angie, it's a pleasure. I would like to begin our conversation by asking you to share with our viewing audience just a little bit about yourself and and your enormous contributions to Indiana University. Well, I should, I should first thank Indiana University <laughs> for the, uh, the privilege of uh, having been able to work here for uh, 34 years. I came here in 1976, uh, and as I tell others, couldn't get another job, <laughs> and uh, uh, happily uh, retired, so to speak, from IU uh, back in 2010. And through those years, uh, IU was a very career-friendly place for me. So uh, I taught almost every course that existed in the uh, student affairs track of our higher ed program. I had an opportunity to do some administrative work, uh, department chair, uh, I was an associate dean, the so-called executive associate dean in the ed school for a few years. And then, uh, uh, and then Debbie Freund, who was, uh, had, had the provost position, wasn't called that, dean of faculties back in the day, said, Koo, you're going around the country telling people how they ought to organize their undergraduate programs. Why don't you do some of that stuff here? So uh, I worked in the dean of faculty's office, a small uh, you know, quarter-time appointment for about three years where we began to implement uh, certain kinds of initiatives that were promising in the field learning communities, for example. We called them freshman interest groups at the time. They were, uh, had a residential component. Uh, so was able to do that, and then the opportunity came about to uh, to start a center, uh, which we now call the Center for Post-Secondary Research. Uh, we say CPR, resuscitating one, insti <laughs> one institution at a time, uh, and it's grown. Uh, we went from a half-time graduate student to, I think there may be 45 people who work in that center now, largely because of the backbone of something called the National Survey of Student Engagement, which we... Uh, with, a, with the help of private foundations and a number of others around the country uh, launched in 2000. So that, uh, that uh, is um, a, a very robust ongoing program. So uh, across the board, uh, uh, taught almost, almost every year, once the center got up and running, not as often as I could have or should have. Uh, but as I said, career friendly in the, to the extent that it gave me an opportunity to do different things over the course of my career and as a result you learn, you know, if you're a professor of higher education, uh, you ought to know something about higher ed in addition to what you might read. So doing the administrative work, running the center, uh, being able to travel and speak around the country, really uh, around the world, uh, has been, um, been a blessing uh, and uh, I'm very fortunate, very lucky to do it and to have Indiana University, a great national treasure, allow me to, to do that. And a voluminous uh, portfolio of publications have emerged from this work. And I'm sure my viewers would agree that 
Um, if you are conducting research in higher education, just about of any kind, you're going to encounter some research that's been completed by George Kerr. I'm always uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm gratified, uh, surprised sometimes when people say, well, I've quoted you in my dissertation. And my response is, well, it's a three-letter last name. <laughs> so it's fairly easy, fairly easy to do. It doesn't take a lot of time to type. Uh, yeah, well, that's, uh, that's certainly gratifying. And, and again, sometimes uh, also very, very surprising. So some of the things that we've been able to do, and I want to say we, uh, because uh, I have a lot of, like you, like others, a lot of single author publications, but I got a lot of multiple author publications. And some of the, I think, most important work were done with research teams. Uh, of course. You know, qualitative studies of 20 institutions with uh, 22, 23 people on the research team. Yes. Um, and that too has uh, its own injection, not just of, of varying perspectives, but energy as you work with different people who see who see what I'm seeing in a different way and, and, uh, and, and uh, kind of expanding my understanding of what's going on. It's part of what prompts my uh, invitation to you in particular because, as you know, there are some hefty questions that I have sent to you uh, that we'll pursue in our conversation mm -hmm. today. And they are questions that, well, let's just say, they're complex and have a lot of moving parts, but I think you've got just the right toolkit to jump in and show us different dimensions of these discussions than we've seen in the previous conversations. So with that said, I'd like to jump right in and pose the first, maybe the most important question to you, and that is, Dr. Q, what do you see as one or two or more of the greatest challenges facing higher education today, and more specifically, challenges that you perceive are really obstacles. They're standing in between higher education in the 21st century and the attainment of higher ed's larger, most important goals, building the commonwealth and making higher education accessible to everyone. Uh, the, the one that I, at the moment, am worried most about is the increasing skepticism that higher education matters. Um, and there are a variety of, I think, reasons uh, for that. But what was once, I think, widely accepted as a purposeful mission, uh, the, the transmission you know, of the culture and, and, and uh, the, the development of new ideas and approaches, technologies, whatever it might be, and the teaching function, preparing people to uh, uh, thrive and survive in an ever-changing world. Uh, you know, pick up the Wall Street Journal or Newsweek or pick almost any popular media today and there is questions about why we matter. Now there are reasons for those questions as I've mentioned. One is what has appeared to be runaway costs uh, which are fueled to no small extent by public disinvestment of funding, which, which state legislators don't like to talk about, and, and there are reasons for that too. I mean, you have to reinforce bridges, you've got, uh, you've got Medicare, there are all sorts of uh, uh, public beneficiaries of public funds. But if you look at what's happened over the last 20, 25 years, it's pretty clear why students are paying more. It's because states and the federal government is paying less. Those, I should say, I mean, the state investment and the, and the federal government, those are huge investments. But yes. when you expand the number of people, mm. not only mm. who need but can benefit, uh, and the country can benefit from uh, a larger 
number of people who are better educated in terms of uh, their democratic, that's a small d, responsibilities. So those, those two challenges um, are, are, are very difficult. We haven't solved the access problem in terms of who gets to go, yes. um, but we've made huge strides there. But now we have this enormous student debt hanging over us, which is, which is often said uh, to, to be another kind of problem. And one of the reasons it's a, it's a problem uh, is because we've asked students to pay more. This goes back to my previous point. We've asked yes. students to pay more of the share of what higher education actually costs. So those are the two things I think that are weighing on, on, on folks' minds now. They have no ready aim solutions to them. Uh, but there are a variety of other things that we need to be, that we are paying attention to. Uh, how do you use technology um, uh, to uh, uh, both make instruction uh, a little less costly to individuals and to institutions? But the other side of that uh, is not all of the good stuff that students need today to do what society is expecting from them are going to come about through classroom interactions. Talk about Whether, that. Yeah. Well, uh, I would like to talk about it because I'm becoming increasingly fascinated. Actually, you go back in my own life. I mean, I, some of my early earlier work was on student learning outside the classroom. Mm. Well, I wish I was been uh, a little more uh, uh, smarter than I was at the time because I would have. Uh, uh, that was always a place where people didn't want to go mm. because we've created these institutions, these large edifices, you know, tall buildings, yes, classrooms, technology-driven uh, buildings, uh, and and that infrastructure is very important. But if you look at what students, what employers want from students today, they want students who are maze bright, as someone once said. In other words, they can look at a situation. Uh, we, here we're talking about critical thinking, problem solving skills, the transfer of what I'm learning to concrete situations yes. in real time and adjusting how I'm thinking and working with you who yes. comes from a different background than I do. So can you do a, a lot of that good work inside a classroom, studio, lab? Well, of course you can. But most students want that concrete experience outside the classroom. And employers want evidence. I, I think the out-of-class the out experience, but coordinated, structured, mm -hmm. uh, lots of reflective activity. Again, as you know well as a service learning yes. practitioner, uh, these are now starting to pay dividends. And this most recent report from the Academy of Arts and Sciences underscores saying virtually every field of endeavor is going to want more evidence that students have developed these inner and intra, well, and some people call them neurocognitive, but that puts us in. Anyway, we can go too deep in the weeds here yeah. with critical thinking, analytical sure. reasoning, but these are, these are um, liberal arts, uh, educational um, emphases, and there's another issue for us. You know, we can't say liberal arts anymore because somehow it's for an elite view, which is absolutely never has been. And, and uh, so I'll stop there for now. I think you make excellent points that really inform the next question. And that is, with these challenges on the table, a kind of crisis of confidence, uh, a kind of cyclical problem that crisis of confidence causes with regard to building stores, at least at foundations of universities, right? Not only is there a crisis with perhaps federal and state funding, but maybe this crisis in confidence is affecting giving and supporting the university in other financial ways. With all of that kind of on the table, how might you respond to 
the role that teaching in particular and the classroom uniquely might play in further articulating these problems and maybe helping us to discover pathways to solutions. Teaching in the classroom, how can they come at these? Well, you, you know more about this than I do, uh, but let me just say that whatever, uh, whatever levers there are that engage and capture the imagination of students as they see how they can use what they're learning, uh, these kinds of educational features, I'll call them, can be infused in any classroom, lab, and studio. So here's a short list, for example. Um, time on, what we used to call time on task. Uh, what we know is students will benefit more from uh, a longer term commitment, exposure to a set of activities or uh, a community engagement project uh, as contrasted with, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with five page essays, especially if students are getting uh, specific feedback on the quality of their writing. So feedback is another one of these educational features that is absolutely essential for um, for their intellectual and, and personal growth. Learning how to work effectively. I mean, uh, you know, uh, how, learning how to play nice in the sandbox. Now, that's, that's a simple way, you know, it reduces really the magnitude of the, uh, of the, of the proficiency, of the magnitude of the importance of the proficiency, but that's absolutely essential today. The one thing that all students have in common is the classroom. Whether it's virtual or bricks and mortar, you know, face-to-face, -face, such as our, our interaction. Um, and it is the case that uh, kind of anonymity is the enemy of deep learning. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we don't do, I think, as a field, as a, as a professorate, is to think about our obligation to create a sense of community in the classroom. Now, most of us, uh, you know, are, are not skilled at that. We, we don't see it as part of our job. You know, I've never seen, I'm sure there are places where the annual review, you know, has a category, you know, to, to what extent are the students in your classes, uh, what extent do they know the others in there, to what extent do they work effectively together, to what extent do they know you, and we don't want to put faculty members, I don't think it's appropriate, you know, to, uh, to necessarily divide their time up, but, but how, how much effort does it take to be sure that students in the room know one another? Now, scale is an enemy here, too. Uh, the point about anonymity is, are people comfortable, uh, and you know, there's great examples of how we, we allow students to bend assignments mm -hmm. toward interests they have mm -hmm. or experiences they've had mm -hmm. so, that they be, so the work becomes more meaningful yes. to them. But a lot of us don't know how to do that. Uh, it, it's more time consuming to think about designing assignments. Or, or opening up assignments so that students can you know, kind of redesign mm -hmm. for their own purposes, mm -hmm. but still be yes. true to the outcomes the, and the content. I don't want to belittle the content, but I think we, we spend far too much time thinking about content and not how we, uh, what we expect of students and put them in situations where they can demonstrate what they're learning. But this classroom as community, uh, uh, and, uh, cr creating a sense that I belong here, um, and I mean, knowing students by name, of course, helps. But if you've got a, <laughs> got a lecture hall of a thousand, then you better have a number of AIs or teaching assistants or upper yes. division students. We, we've not made 
we have a lot of resources, a lot of instructional resources on campuses that we haven't used. And I'm thinking here about peer mentors, uh, peer instructors, uh, preceptors. Uh, having those upper division junior, senior students become a legitimate part of the instructional team. Um, so back to these educational features. We have known for a long time what makes for effective educational practice. Um, we, we don't often spend enough time looking at our own coursework, our own classes, and how, we've, how we are using those. And part of this has been because of the so-called, um, I don't know, independent operator, autonomous creature. Um, what I do in my classroom is my responsibility. What you do in your classroom is your responsibility. Never the twain shall meet. So let's have a program meeting to talk about who is teaching what. What kinds of outcomes are expected in what kind of course. And so when, when, when faculty get together and they do this kind of what we sometimes call curricular mapping, mm -hmm. we have a list of the desired outcomes and then when you go through various courses we find that there are gaps. No one is addressing this particular outcome yes. in any of our courses. So there are, are, are I mean, a long, long list of what, uh, what faculty members can do. And, the, uh, and then there's this now kind of decades old, fortunately, movement, a discernible movement, right? from uh, teaching to learning, from the so-called instruction-dominated uh, paradigm, uh, the sage on the stage, you know, these little euphemistic <laughs> phrases we have for this. But they have real consequences. Yes. So the emergence of teaching and learning centers, for example, uh, as a, not just a place, but as a, as a movement, as a, a, a source of energy, uh, as a community. So and, and IU has a, you know, a nice long yes. list of, of uh, initiatives that correspond with the work, with the, with the purposes of a teaching and learning center. And that is to, to share the knowledge that we have now uh, gained as a community of scholar practitioners, teaching experts, and uh, help others see how these uh, these not just pearls of wisdom, but empirically derived yes. uh, features can help improve their instruction with the outcome, the only outcome really that matters these days is student learning. Yes, so uh, we, we've made, uh, I think, great strides in moving from this uh, teaching-centered paradigm to student learning. Are we doing enough today to prepare these young teachers as they come to us from their graduate programs, their doctoral programs, they really are arriving on our campuses as content experts. In your mind, with your national and international purview about what goes on and let's say, for example, just the formulation of the pedagogies that we wish to pursue in, or should pursue in higher ed, are we doing enough, Dr. Ku, to prepare these young teachers for this large challenge that is before them? Well, there's an obvious answer to that, <laughs> and the answer is no, we ought to be doing more, we should be doing more. Um, you know, the cultures of, of universities um, are, are very difficult to, to change, and the, 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 there are a lot of institutions, I use one of them, a lot of institutions that have taken this responsibility more mm -hmm. seriously. But we need to get to students before they show up as uh, uh, tenure billeted you know, assistant professors. This ought to be happening, as you mentioned, in graduate schools. So uh, the Council of Graduate Schools has had a number of initiatives over the years to try to move um, some of the some of the best knowledge about pedagogy into graduate programs. Some graduate programs by discipline 
are um, more um, what they're, they're they're more interested in it. I've been pleasantly surprised with the historians, for example, and the communication studies people about how much more open they are these days. Uh, and these, these are faculty members on the ground. There are other disciplines that shall go unnamed, <laughs> I guess. I because I'm you know, but this is a broad brush I'm using here, yes. so we have to be very, very careful about about that. I'm sure I'm going to want to backpedal, maybe change my address, uh, <laughs> take it out of the public record. Um, uh, so, the, I mean, there are individual institutions that are far more yes. open to this. There are individual disciplines that, on average, if you will, on balance, are far more open to it. Uh, but it does, it, it has to start at the, in the graduate school, and it has, I mean, the graduate program, and yeah. it has to start with the graduate program professors who who we've all done this you know what, what are we after we're after cloning ourselves yes. you know, we we want somebody to be kind of like me we want them to dress like me we want, <laughs> we want them to like what I like I'm overstating it here um, but I think there have been uh, we, we've made great inroads and as we see uh, different generations of faculty come to us they are much more open to the notion of working with the teaching and learning center yes uh, I'm using that just as one one example, um, but of course institutions can do this well. Uh, can do it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we can make. Uh, we have Indiana University has done this. Made made teaching a higher priority by modifications. I was going to say tweaking. That's what first came to my mind. <laughs> but I mean serious modifications in promotion and tenure, and annual review. You want to get a faculty member's attention early. If you, if if they haven't come predisposed, we can certainly help their disposition by saying, look. We expect every probationary faculty member in the first year yes. to work with the Teaching and Learning Center. Uh, yes. Now you need department chairs who are willing to do that. You need yes. deans and associate deans in particular who are kind of riding herd on this. I mean, you know, we have academic bureaucracies, but they exist and can be used for, yes. for good, may I say. It's <laughs> a know? great point, but all too often we shed that negative light but I think you make an excellent point that that can really that layer of administration can mobilize these incentives in a way that perhaps the AOs in other areas cannot they're you know, closer to the boots on the ground we we send strong messages to uh, to the newcomers by what we ask from them and what we ask them to do when they come and interview yes Good so point. oftentimes, oh well, yeah, so give your favorite lecture. Well, okay, fine. Uh, I, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a content specialist. I'm going to yes. tell you some things that you've never heard of. Uh, sure. And I'm going to tell you about that in 45 minutes. <laughs> but, but that's not likely, uh, what, that, that is not likely what's going to drive someone who was, is going to become uh, a pedagogically uh, facile, yes. if I may say. Yeah. I'm going to ask now that we ramp up a notch and... I'll ask that you look around for that crystal ball of yours that I know that you've got in your backpack somewhere. And gazing into that, Dr. Koo, what do you see in the future of higher education? Do you feel that these challenges we've put on the table today are ones that will persist? Do you feel that we'll be able to address those? Do you see new challenges emerging on the horizon? May not be here yet, but you can tell they're coming. You got the wrong guy, uh, <laughs> I think, here, about predicting the future. You know, I just, I, I'm too sensitive to the little bit I've read about <laughs> prognosticators. You know, 85% of what we say is wrong. Well, we know. We know that um, 
that the world is, uh, the, the complexity is ramping up at paces that we can't, well, you know, we, we, we cannot uh, stay up to date in various fields. We know that, in my mind, I think, uh, and this is, this is a hard nut to crack, it's a hard cultural shift to make, that content uh, of a course becoming less important than the kinds of proficiencies that mm -hmm. students walk away with because the, the, the need to be a, a, an old phrase, lifelong learner, has never been more important. So, so how, what, what kinds of learning experiences will prepare students to learn on their own, uh, to, to work in a job that doesn't exist today? And more and more students are going to be doing that. In five, they're going to be in jobs that we, we don't even have names for five, ten years from now. So what they learn, what they know now, will be, I, I mean, just content may become may become um, irrelevant. Uh, I worry about the coherence of learning. So, you know, so we knew you know, 10 years ago that students were taking courses in the same academic term from two or more institutions. Well, today, now they're getting badges and certificates. Uh, they're, they're taking courses uh, online. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not trying to be disparaging here, but we don't have an overlay, an overlay structure which uh, enables us to, um, to make certain that students are drawing the connections they ought to between different kinds of learning experiences. I don't have a solution to this particular issue, uh, except to say that there are some technologies. Uh, and so I'm going to lean on ePortfolio here as a very, very promising pedagogical approach, not, yes. not just a record-keeping right. system, which, right. uh, which some of us uh, assume that's what ePortfolio is. Uh, but it, you know, it, it is a continuous effort to get students to be thinking about what they're learning uh, and the connections that they are making so they can themselves you know, we call them right artifacts. They can compile artifacts, you know, papers yes. they've written, project reports, and so forth and so on. But we need, we need someone, the, the guide on the side. It could be an upper, upper division student, right, having conversations with the person who's in the first year putting together some of what they have uh, produced as a, as a first year student and second year and so forth. But over time, you've got this collection of artifacts, but more importantly, You've got a student who's been asked to think about what these different experiences have meant to them, what they can do now and what they haven't been able, or, or, or what they might be doing tomorrow to fill in gaps and so forth and so on. We, we don't expect, I don't think most individuals can do that on their own. Uh, you know, most of us do not, do not exceed expectations we set for ourselves. We need someone to challenge us. One of those educational features, for example, that can be instilled in any classroom, lab, and studio. So I'm very, I'm very bullish. I don't consider myself any portfolio uh, you know, expert, but I'm very bullish on the promise yeah. of something like an e-portfolio and what's coming along, I hope, has some legs, an extended, what some people are calling an extended educational transcript. So in addition mm -hmm. to the grades, from various courses, which, as I said, employers are yeah. far less interested in knowing that they want you. They yes. want they're asking you. Well, so, what did you learn in this course, and how are you going to use it in this job? And what about? Um, so, the education, the extended educational record, is supposed to be uh, supposed to augment what the academic transcript um, 
uh, holes or is to communicate. Um, but none of that matters if we aren't asking students mm -hmm. to reflect in deep, meaningful ways over the course of their studies as to what this has meant to them, how they're different now, what they can do now that they couldn't do yes. before. Now, will computers take care of that for us? I, I think the computer can pose questions. You know, we've got a lot of technology that poses questions to students. Um, but we also need to be able to give students feedback uh, about the quality uh, of the, and the depth of their reflection. I, uh, by the way, that's, <laughs> that's the most important thing that can come out of the college experience. Mm, practice, yes. practice doing this because that's what people, spouses, children, civic leaders are going to be expecting yes, of us. Can, yes. can, can this person hold their own in an ever-changing world and continue to grow and learn? Over time. Over time. That lifelong learning. Yeah. Dr. Ku, I want to thank you for joining us in this great conversation today, but I can't let you off that hot seat uh, before I deliver a few thank yous to you. I want to thank you for the groundbreaking, really pioneering work you did on the Indiana University Bloomington campus, but your work has trickled through all of our campuses. And on my campus, Indiana University East, I want to thank you so much for all of your contributions in terms of the innovative programs that we have developed, the innovative pedagogies that we're employing in the classroom. Your fingerprints are on so much of that work. And from me personally, knowing you, knowing your work, hearing you and seeing you over the past 20 years has made a profound impact on what I do every day in the classroom. So I want to thank you very personally for your work. It's high praise. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope that all of your NILOA endeavors are successful and enriching as you enjoy these next years as you continue your research and your